uh, we have over here on the left in the back a very cohesive group. I'd like to ask all of you to move up toward the front, please. Thank you. The purpose of our workshop is to take some of the principles and the things that were being taught in the morning and in the evening and to try to make them practical. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's difficult to do with a, a mob this size, but nevertheless, I think that there's some things we can really learn from this precious scripture that we're studying this weekend. I'd like for us to look at a number of scriptures in First and Second Timothy. And so I'll ask you first to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and I will take us through just some assorted verses as we introduce the workshop today. First Timothy chapter 1. Let's look at uh, verses 18 through 20. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Chapter 4, verse 12. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. I feel like I'm in a barrel or something. A lot of echo, huh? A lot of echo. First uh, Timothy chapter four, verse 12, let no one look down on your youth, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Chapter six, verse 11 and 12. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 2 Timothy chapter 1, 
our theme verses 12 through 14. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And then just one more in chapter 4, Paul's testimony, verses 6 and 7. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Our Father, we thank you that we can study your word. And we're so thankful we could have this time together. But we need the Holy Spirit to breathe life upon us, that those things that we hear could penetrate deeper than just our understanding and into the spiritual intelligence of our life. We depend upon you, therefore, to breathe upon us, give us understanding, even in this workshop. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, I'm glad that you're here today. I think as many young people here, some not so young anymore. But uh, it's okay, because we have to learn some lessons that Paul is teaching his wonderful son in the faith, Timothy. We don't really know how old Timothy was when these words were written, but we know that Timothy was considered young. And as one who is young, we find a double value, therefore, in this word specifically to us. First of all, there's great value in these words that Paul wrote at the end of his life. He is... He has distilled a lot of stuff, and he's come down to things that are essential for a man of God, as we read today, he called Timothy. So there's great value for us if we'll learn these lessons that Paul is teaching Timothy. He has come to the end of his life by 2 Timothy. He says, I've finished the race. I've kept the fight. I've kept the faith. I've fought the fight. That's a wonderful testimony. Many Christians start out with real faith in the Lord, but something goes cold. And as they grow into maturity, adulthood, and onward, they seem to sort of settle into a, um, uh, a Laodicean, lukewarm Christian experience. Well, Paul doesn't want that for Timothy. But this has great value for us also because Timothy was young. And because he was teachable. We know, according to church tradition, that Timothy went on faithfully 
as an apostle and the servant of Jesus Christ, there in Ephesus and traveling primarily through Asia Minor. And according to church tradition, he was finally martyred in around 93 A.D., still believing in Jesus, still serving him faithfully, faithful to the end. In that sense, he followed the Apostle Paul. And in that sense, he was a great man of God. Now, in that passage that we're considering, we look again at this verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14. And my version, New American Standard, says this. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Some versions say the deposit or the good deposit or just that which was entrusted to you. There's different versions. I like this version, treasure, because once again, I think we see how valuable Paul's exhortations are. There's something very valuable that Timothy has, a treasure. And Paul is saying, I want you to keep that treasure. This is very important in your life. This exhortation is even more profitable to us because he tells us in those two verses, or three, if you want to say 12, 13, and 14, exactly how you guard the treasure. How do you guard this treasure? Well, Paul tells us in verse 12, when he says, for, this, uh, for I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him against that day. Now, what does that mean? Very simply, it means this. Those things that I have done, Paul says, I commit back to the Lord. Those things I have learned. I commit back to the Lord. And He is able to guard or keep. Some of you know the old gospel song. And it's got the word keep. Well, keep and guard is the same word. Here in New American Standard it uses, and it's consistent, the word guard. Now, the, what is the treasure? What is the treasure that we need to guard? What is the treasure in your life? Well, of course, you guys are all cheating because you've all sung that song, You are the treasure that I... No. Right? So we all know the treasure is Jesus, and I have to give you partial credit for that. Because as you know, in any Sunday school class, if you just say the answer Jesus, you have to get partial credit. But the treasure that is in you is actually not... Paul isn't just talking about Jesus. He is the treasure. But the treasure in you, what is it? What was that treasure in Paul? What was that treasure in Timothy? Do you have a treasure in you? Well, if you're saved, if you've come to the Lord Jesus, and you know the Lord Jesus, you do have some treasure. And it's your wonderful privilege as you go through your life to add treasures within. It isn't Jesus Christ himself, although, of course, he is our treasure. What Paul is talking about here is that the Lord deposits things in you as you 
undergo transactions with the living God. If you see some kind of vision, it becomes part of your treasure to keep. You remember Paul says that I saw a vision in the third heaven. And for 14 years, he never told anybody about it. He just treasured that thing right in here. If you read the Word of God and the Lord speaks to you in a living way, this is a treasure. If you serve the Lord and you accomplish something and bear fruit, this is a treasure. In other words, it's all of the transactions. It's a general term. You can't be too specific on it because actually, as our brothers are sharing morning and evening, the treasure even has to do with the whole testimony of Jesus in the church. But simply, simply put, every transaction you have with your Lord is a treasure if you'll keep it. Many Christians have many blessings in their life. And they remember the blessings. They remember the days where they loved the Lord. They remember the days they were willing to witness and speak of Him. They remember the prayers that were answered. They remember the discoveries they had in the Word. But now, they've let those things go. And it's not even as simple as that. The enemy is wanting to snatch away those treasures within. And so we have to learn to guard. Do you think these transactions are valuable in your life? I think it's probably a good thing that some people keep a journal when the Lord really does something. You know, if you read the biographies of all the great saints... It's not like they had a notation for every day of their life. But certainly when something tremendous happened, they noted it down. They have a book. And, and you know what? When you go back and you look at these things, they're, they're even more precious to you later on. And why is that? Because in the related areas of our life, the Lord gives us a treasure. We learn about faith. We learn about prayer. We learn about witness. We learn about obedience. All these things become treasures. And then we say, keep these treasures, Lord. Keep them. I don't want them to go away, but I know I'm not a very good keeper. Now, what happens in our life is, three years later, we're kind of recycling back again and learning another lesson about faith, obedience, service, on a deeper level. But it, you cash in on the treasure from the past because you can connect with it and your faith goes deeper. And so your understanding of faith, obedience, service goes deeper. Then three years later, through some circumstances, here it comes again and the treasure gets deeper and richer and fuller and more blessed. And that's why when you meet some of those dear saintly missionaries who served the Lord and given their lives for the Lord all of their life, and you just see them, they're so full of joy, of blessedness, of richness. And many young Christians say, wow, how could I be like that? I, I wish I were so full of joy and wisdom. You know, like some of those old Bible sisters who just know so much of the Lord. They help out people. Or those brothers who really seem to know the Lord. It's so precious. It's your possession if you'll keep it and add to it and keep it and add to it. And so... 
Uh, I want to look at three things today, three relationships, spiritual relationships in regard to this matter. Today, I'm going to look uh, today. We're going to look at these things. Fighting and guarding. They go hand in hand. Second thing, faith and conscience. They go hand in hand. Third, faith and doubt. They go hand in hand. Okay, let's look at those things as a sort of a workshop this afternoon. Okay, now first, you notice there, again in 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll just read that verse uh, at the end of um, verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Fight the good fight. And then if you look at chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. It actually says in the, in the Greek, fight the noble fight. In other words, there's a good reason to fight. Now, I know some of you fight your brother all the time and all that kind of stuff. And some of you fight yourself in some kind of a civil war within, you know, flesh and spirit and all that kind of stuff. But there is a good fight for the Christian. And if you are going to be a Christian who is advancing, you're going to have to fight. And guess what the fight's all about? Faith. Faith is a very pivotal issue in the Christian's life. I just want to show you there's 25 times that the word faith is used in these two Letters, First and Second Timothy. Let me just point out about 13 or 14 of them to you, okay? Just so you can hear how much faith has to do with what Paul is telling Timothy. Basically, Paul is saying, Timothy, if you don't serve by faith, if you don't live by faith, if you don't relate to your brothers and sisters by faith, you're not going to be faithful in the end to the Lord. Faith is the key. And it's a sense of advancement. Faith is an advance. Faith is you step into something. Faith is you do something. Faith is an action, you see. So look at just some of these verses here. Uh, uh, chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, verses 4 and 5. It's mentioned twice, once in each verse. Don't Tell them not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So how do you further the economy of God? The Greek word, again, is economy, actually. How do you further the economy of God or the purpose of God? By faith. Verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Ah, sincere faith. And here the Greek word is unhypocritical faith. True faith, real faith, sincere faith. Then we read already about fight the fight of faith there in verse 19. Uh, let's look at a couple of others here. In chapter 3, the deacons are exhorted in verse 9 to hold the mystery of the faith in a clear conscience. Chapter 4, verse 1, as Paul predicts the great falling away, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. Chapter 4, verse 6. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith. Chapter 4, verse 12. 
Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith. Be an example. Chapter 6, verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith. Verse 11, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. And then we looked at verse 12 where it talks about the fight of faith. Uh, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard. It's the same word as guard the treasure. Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you. Well, it just goes on and on and on. I, I don't know how much to... Uh, uh, well, let's read a couple more. In chapter 3, verse 8. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. Well, here you see how important faith is. Twenty-five times it's mentioned faith and the faith. Now, did you notice as we were reading, sometimes it was talking about faith, and sometimes it was talking about the faith? And were you awake this morning when our brother Stephen was sharing? And he shared about the faith? And so he's actually talking about sometimes that bigger issue of the sum total of what you believe. The faith. And sometimes he's talking about that faith action. Faith in Christ Jesus, which enables us to go. Now, when it says fight the good fight of faith, it means we have to fight for faith. It's a, it's a fight to wrestle, to believe the Lord, His reality, His existence in this world. In this world, everybody believes what they see. And you're told to believe what you don't see. And so faith is a fight. But it's more than just because we're living in a world that does not believe, and you do believe. The real wrestling of faith in our lives, especially for believers, which I assume most of you are here, you believe in the Lord, you believe in the Bible, you believe God is huge, awesome, He can do all kinds of things. You believe that stuff already. But here's the real crunch. The fight, the good fight of faith is to believe that the Lord specifically wants to use you for something crucial and important. That's where the fight comes. You can believe God can uh, move a mountain if He wants, but is the Lord wanting to use me? And so Timothy is being exhorted by Paul here to have faith. Faith. Listen to uh, some of the verses here. You know, Timothy is a young man, and Paul is in jail. And if you could just imagine yourself being a young person who is faithful to the Lord, and the Lord is telling you to do this long list of things. 
Do you believe you can do it? Are you willing to obey and act? Let me just show you a couple of things that Paul is telling Timothy to do. In chapter 1, verse 3 of 1 Timothy, I think we'll just look at 1 Timothy. Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And so, first of all, Timothy, the young man, is told to stay in Ephesus and correct people who are teaching wrong doctrine. (laughs) Timothy is a young man. And I'll bet you anything, those people who are teaching the false doctrines are older men. And uh, Timothy just hears that exhortation. He goes, I don't know. Can I do that? These guys might beat me up. I don't know. In verse 18, where he says, fight the good fight of faith. Notice what he says before that. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Yeah, but do you believe those prophecies? You have a calling on your life, but do you believe that? Seems like those prophecies made were years ago. Do you still believe that? Because now you have to fight the good fight of faith by yourself. I'm not around you anymore. Timothy, you've got to do it. Take faith action. Believe it. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Those prophecies, I don't know. Those guys, they were rubbing my head and saying all kinds of stuff. I don't know. Am I really called to be an evangelist, a teacher, an apostle? Sounds awfully big. I thought I was happier being a milkman, you know? There's the fight of faith to believe that the Lord wants you to do these kinds of things. In chapter 2, Paul, uh, Paul says, Now, Timothy, I want you to make the church in Ephesus a house of prayer. And so he tells them how they should pray. And then in the middle of chapter 2 through chapter 3, he says, Now, I want you to set the house of God in order. So I want the women to learn how to submit and how to dress properly. I want the men to have character as elders and deacons. I want the widows to act righteously, and I want the elders to do what's right, and I want you to make sure all of that happens. Wow. Do I have faith to do this kind of thing? And then on top of all of that, can you believe, he says, oh, by the way, then I want you to go to the rich people in the congregation and tell them to humble themselves. And not store up stuff in the stock market and, and be all preoccupied with that, but rather to serve the kingdom of God with what they have. Now, you know, the toughest people in the world to deal with are rich people. Because rich people always think they're right. And here's Timothy, who has to come up there and say, uh, Listen, uh, Mr. Rich Man, don't trust in your riches. They'll become a snare. Well, look, just look at the verse. I mean, this is what Paul tells Timothy to say. Uh, chapter 6, 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves a treasure. Well, you see, there we go. And there's Timothy, 25-year-old kid, 
just graduated from Stanford University. And he's standing up against the big businessman who runs the car dealership. Now, faith is an action. And it's a fight. Because you know something? It's easy to study your Bible without faith. You're doing it as duty. It's easy to teach and minister without faith. You're just doing your duty. It's easy to go to church without faith. You're just doing your duty. But to live with living faith, it's a fight. Why is it a fight? Because you have to keep your heart alive to God. Living faith can only happen when you hear from God and you obey God. That's the only way it can happen. And so now we're talking about the other side, this first combination, fight and guard. Now, you know, there's what they call in boxing a brawler. Now, some of you young guys may be brawlers. Now, what you do is you take both of your fists and you go after somebody just like this. Well, that may work in a video game. But in boxing, it doesn't work. Because you have to, in boxing, fight the fight of faith and also guard. So you have your guard up and you have your jab. Your jab, your guard. Because this guy's, of course, punching you. So you've got to have this guard going like this to block off the shots. If you just go, this guy will just go right through the stuff and go, blank, and you're down. Now, some people, and by the way, this is one reason why it's so great to be in the body of Christ. Why? Because some people are fighters. And I don't mean fighting against other Christians. I mean they're adventurers. People of faith. Yeah, we can take that. Yeah, we can walk across that water. Come on, let's go. Some people seem like they have no fear. You know, they're willing to venture out all the time. And then there's other people who are like the guard, you know. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, let's pray about this some more. I'm not so sure. We better watch out, you know. And it's a good thing we got one another. Because the fighters will go off the deep end and get walloped. But you know what? If you're just a guard, and this is all you, you say, this is the way I'm going to box. Here we go. It's called the prevent offense in football. You don't want to gain any yards. You just want to wear out the time. You just want to gain 10 yards in four downs. It's all prevent. It never works. And the enemy eventually beats you up. You can't just be guarding all the time. But you just can't be fighting all the time. You got the fight and you got the guard. You got the fight. And by fighting with faith, you will gain some things. You gain some treasures. Now, but if you don't guard them, they go out the back door. So fighting... Fight of faith and guarding. We've got the guard at the same time in order to gain and keep those things. Otherwise, the treasure can be stolen. Fighting, guarding. So before we move on to the next uh, section, let me just ask you, do you fight the good fight of faith? Maybe I, I hope there's some adventurers here. You know, these matters that our brother was sharing this morning, they're very big matters. 
The Lord has entrusted incredible things to His people. But we've got to be faithful. You just can't stand around hiding from the devil. There's got to be some advance by faith. Where you trust, where you're willing to, you, you put your chips down, where you're actually willing to, to believe the Lord on some things and step forward in faith, not be so cautious. Seems like some assemblies we have, almost everybody's a guard. But where's the shooters? Where's the center? Where's the number one forward? Where, where, where's the guys taking the shots if we're just all back and chucking three pointers once in a while? We're not going to win. So, fighting, guarding. Fight the good fight of faith. Guard the treasure that you have, right? Now, with that in mind as a picture, we see how Paul makes it very practical for Timothy when he says this. This fighting the good fight of faith and this guarding involves one thing especially. Your conscience. Fighting our faith and conscience, they go hand in hand. It's a very important relationship between faith and conscience. What is that relationship? Let's look at the scriptures involved, just so you can see something of this. Uh, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, here is the point of these three verses. You can't have good faith without a good conscience. People want to be faithful. They want to serve God. This is one of the biggest problems among young people who love the Lord. They want to serve the Lord, but their conscience isn't clear. And they think it's okay, the life that they live. But their lives are not fruitful. And they've never understood that there is an unchanging relationship between living faith and a good conscience. Chapter 1, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Sincere faith, good conscience. Chapter 1, verses, uh, the end of verse 18 and then 19. That by them you might fight the good fight, keeping faith and the good conscience. Ah, fighting, but there's some guard duty there. Fight the good fight of faith and also have to keep a good conscience. They go together. Or look when he is uh, talking about the deacons in chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Now, what's the relationship there? Now, you see, I know that there's a whole sector, could I say, of Christianity who just basically says, that's okay, Jesus' blood has covered it all, you're forgiven of your sins, it's okay. But unless you've confessed and turned from the sins that your conscience is talking to you about, 
it doesn't work out that way. Our faith is a very um, uh, contiguous thing. It depends upon our having a good conscience for it truly to work. And here's where we see a great warfare, a need to guard and a need to fight. There we see in chapter 1, verse 19, we see that the world wants to bring shipwreck to our faith. Keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenius and Alexander. He mentions the two guys. Because they used to have faith. And we assume they used to have faith in a good conscience. But you know what? There are those today who are Christians who have unbelievable claims of faith. Even like braggadocia type of faith. Daring faith. Bold faith. And a conscience that's absolutely shipwrecked. Unfortunately, servants of God many times are blessed by the Lord. They're blessed with a following. They're blessed by, uh, in their ministry. And sometimes they stop being careful about their conscience. And, when, and if the enemy can shipwreck their faith by separating their conscience from their faith... Eventually, their faith becomes fake. There are many great, well-known servants of God who are doing all kinds of miracles and things today. But I'll tell you, if their conscience isn't clear, there's a disconnect. And there's a lot of fakery that goes on in the name of faith. Fighting, guarding. Now, you know that the conscience is the first line of defense, the first guard at the post of your heart. Because the issue with faith is the heart. What does that mean? There is a deeper decision-making process than just your mind. There's something that is deeper than your mind. It's some kind of conjunction of mind, will, and emotions that's called the heart. It's in the heart that man believes. You know that scripture from Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the, with, the, with the heart, man believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made to salvation. So faith is there in the heart. Faith is ticking in the heart. So, that being the case, we've got to keep our heart sensitive. And the world wants to shipwreck our hearts. But there's another enemy to your living faith. And what is that? The world wants to shipwreck your conscience. And religion wants to sear your conscience. Chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage, advocate abstaining from food, which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. 
And what is this saying? Religion sears your conscience. How does it do? You know what sears me? It's like taking a hot iron and putting it on your arm. And what it does is all your feeling goes right there. You've just, I don't know what. But you, I mean, of course, after you go, ah, fall down and they take you to the hospital and everything. You could just absolutely burn out your, let's put it, like, let's put it this way. You can burn out your conscience's nerve endings by religion. Oh, I do this, I do that, I do this, I do that, I fast, I do that, 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 that. therefore I'm religious. And you see, and God could say, ah, 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 ah. He tried to say, ah, 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 to the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul said, no, I do this, I do that, I do this. You see, religion sears our conscience. Whether the world or whether religion, the point is, we have to have living faith by a good conscience. What is this fight to keep a good conscience? This passage that we're referring to here in chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, that talks about fighting the good fight of faith, comes in the context of Paul explaining about his own former days before he was saved. If you look back there in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly and unbelief. He goes on and talks about how he's now the chief of sinners and he knows it, but the point that he's making is this. For Paul, the battle line in his conscience was this, not to condemn himself for what he did in the past. Let me ask you a question. How many times do you think the devil came to Paul while he was in a jail for years and years and said, ha, 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 ha. you deserve this for killing Christians. God doesn't love you because you were always nasty. <laughs> How many times do you think the devil came and spoke to Paul and tried to make him feel condemned? Look what you did. God could never forgive that. You just were believing a lie all your life. And there he is sitting among the rats. And nothing's going on and he hasn't heard from this group or that. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. Is Caesar going to kill him or let him go? And in the midst of all of that, he had to fight this thing. But you know what he said? I don't care what the devil says. I don't even care when my conscience tries to convince me I'm disqualified. I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed unto him. That was Paul's answer. My conscience is clear. Jesus has forgiven me. And so Paul could act in living faith because his conscience was always clear. So Paul had to fight off condemnation all his life and not to mention sins in his life. Now, let me ask you a question. Now, I'm actually going to ask somebody to give an answer, so it's time to wake up. Here we go. If Paul's problem for the most of his life was trying to overcome that sense of condemnation, what do you think Timothy had to fight always in his life? His conscience fight. To keep his conscience clear. What was Timothy's fight? 
Well, let, me, let me ask you. I'll give you A, B, or C. A. Timothy had the fight because he was a graduate from college and very proud about his knowledge. B. Timothy also did a lot of nasty stuff before he got saved. And so he always had to know the Lord had forgiven him too. So he was always condemned by the Lord. C. Timothy was a goody-goody growing up in a nice little Jewish home. And he didn't do many things wrong, but when he got saved, he got saved. But Timothy is always fearful that he might fail. Now, which one do you think he has to fight? Yes, C. How did you guess? Well, uh, since some of you don't know what I'm talking about or even believe me, let, let's just look at a couple of things. In 2 Timothy, Paul is ready to die. And he's reminding Timothy about his uh, grandmother and his mother. And he comes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Now, you see if you can figure out why Paul is saying this. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that it's in you as well. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. Timothy, why are you hiding under the bushel? Timothy, why are you afraid? Timothy, I know I can no longer be with you like I used to be. Now you've got to go on and be faithful. You remember those gifts that you had? Oh, yeah. When you were standing there right with me and Paul, you know, Paul was preaching the gospel and suddenly he said, you know what, I need a, uh, what are those, uh, oh, I need a Ricola. Uh, Paul, Papa, Ricola. I said, Timothy, take over. And Timothy immediately gets up on a soapbox and says, and Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners and, and he's the greatest God and you need to come to him. And people got saved. Now Timothy goes down to the square in Ephesus, the marketplace, and Paul's not there anymore, but the soapbox is still there. And Timothy gets up and says, eh, 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 Can I have your attention, please? Hello? I'm testing. And uh, where's that courage? Where's that gift? Well, he's become afraid. And uh, well, you know what? <laughs> this is my problem. I can never be Paul. Well, it's true. But you could be Timothy. Come on. Stir up that gift within you. Who do you think you are? You've got an important role to play. And Timothy had a very, very important transitional role between Paul's ministry and the Apostle John's ministry in Ephesus. If it weren't for Timothy, that church wouldn't have gone on in such love and such power for all those years. But Timothy always felt like, well, I'm just nothing. I, I can't really be of service to the Lord. Well, I just don't have much going on. And so... Uh, yeah, maybe I should go work out in the gym. So Paul says, ah, 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 ah. You can work out in the gym, but spend twice as much time on your knees as you do at the gym. Ah, yes. 
for God. I have a calling. It's very important to God. Yeah, Paul says, now study to show yourself approved. Oh, yeah, well, it's funny. I haven't been checking out the Word too much lately. Because, you see, a fearful person tends to back away from their calling. And in the process, they back away from what? Their living faith. Keeping faith and a good conscience. Timothy, you know you're called of God. You know you're gifted by God. And it's time for you to act on it. And then gather the treasure and keep the treasure. So this is always a problem for young people and old. Keeping living faith together with a good conscience. You know as an example. Well, we should look at one verse outside of Timothy just to... uh, gain that further understanding in first John chapter three. Let's look at some verses there. John also is talking about this need to be clear of sin in our lives by confessing our sins. But uh, we just pick up in verse 19. It's a long story, but he's talking about loving our brothers and sisters by faith. And we'll know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. There's nothing more precious than a child of God who knows the Father is pleased with them, who knows that they have done what the Father has told them to do. These people have confidence to ask in faith. And God will give them what they ask for. Why? Because their heart is in good shape. The heart believes God loves them, that they're accepted, that they're forgiven. And so they ask and God answers because their their heart's alive. But if your heart condemns you because there's some sin unconfessed or some sin presently practiced that you're not giving up on, And so you've got this kind of gray zone between you and the Lord. It's funny about faith. You start out with faith and you say, okay, God, I'm going to go out and serve you. And you start to go out, but you just kind of lose your steam as you're going out. Faith dribbles out through the holes of unconfessed sin. But if our hearts are clear, then we live and we serve by living faith. So, we always come down to such things that you have to examine in your own life. Is there sin unconfessed? And let me take it one notch even further. How about gray area sins? Sins that, uh, mm, I don't know, is it right or is it wrong? I don't know. That kind of fence straddling sort of mm, semi-compromise. Give it up. If it puts you in a state of semi-compromise, it puts your faith in a state of inactivity. Most of the history of the church, as they've experienced revivals, true revivals, have been times when the Holy Spirit has opened up the hearts of people who were living in a Laodicean kind of mediocrity, And the Holy Spirit convicted people of sins, mostly these kinds of men's amends of sins. Eh, They're not so good, they're not so bad. Gray area sins. 
It's like this. Two sisters had a big fight with each other. Of course, it's always over a guy, but let's forget that for now. Two sisters really had a fight with each other. And uh, they knew it was a bad fight because they didn't talk to each other and it caused a stink in the young people's group for a while. And so they both kind of forgave each other, but they just don't really talk to each other that much anymore. And it's kind of settled in the middle of a sort of a, well, I've forgiven, but I've not forgotten, and I'm sort of cool, but it's okay. And then the Holy Spirit shows up, and you find out it's not okay. And you've got to go ask forgiveness. And you've got to hug and wash their feet. And then faith comes back in your heart. Faith and the good conscience. Very precious possessions of every Christian. But you have to be willing to pay the price. The last thing I want to mention is the third combination that I spoke about. Faith and doubt. Now, as we mentioned, we pictured faith as a fight that advances forward. And uh, sometimes when we first come to the Lord, we're full of faith and some stupidity, but we can't tell the difference. And we believe God can do anything, and we step on out, and God meets us, and wonderful things happen, and, and we live by faith for a while. But then we grow up, which means we start to know things. Now, the mind is the biggest hurdle to faith, and so we have to deal with it. Now, can you imagine? I mean, here's God's joke. Could you imagine believing that God can heal somebody? When you're a doctor, you know the doctor knows all the all of the symptoms and everything. Now it's really tough for a doctor just to go up and say, "Be healed." They say, "Be healed." They take these in the morning because they know so much, and that's like one of God's many jokes. That's why He gives us. The guy who talks about healing the most of any guy in the Bible is Dr. Luke. You know he had to be broken down into simple faith. Our minds are a great complication. Now, this isn't only a problem with doctors. Forget it. It's a problem with everybody. Because as you grow up, you grow worldly wise. And you start to say, oh, all of this works by certain principles and things, and God's not really much of a factor in it, and there's sociological things. The more you know, the harder it is for you to exercise faith. Hmm. And in this, we need to understand what a fight of faith it is to overcome doubt with faith. Now, as we mentioned before, the heart is the place where we believe, right? But guess what? The heart is also the place where we unbelieve. If you turn to Mark chapter 11, it's a famous but uh, wonderful scripture. Turn to Mark chapter 11. And verse 23, Jesus is talking about throwing mountains around. 
Verse 22 begins, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Now, this thing of faith in the heart and of doubt in the heart is a great mystery. We're talking about something deeper in our life than just mind-mental transactions. When you believe with your heart, what happens is your mind cooperates with your will and your emotions and you put your money down that God is, has said that to you and you step out by faith. Unbelief is the same process, except you, except you hear from God and your mind begins to research and your will decides we're not going to take action. We're not going to believe. It's a, it's a transaction in the heart, you see. And so part of the fight of faith is living by faith, jumping over this hurdle of doubt. Doubt is also called the disobedience in the Bible. And it's also called unbelief in the Bible. But I want to uh, explain doubt in a little bit different way because it's a funny thing about doubt. It has a vital relationship to faith. Faith and doubt go hand in hand. Because the heart has to deal with the mind in this matter of faith. Okay? This is what I mean. Your mind can only believe what it can see. And the more it learns, the more it has confidence in its judgments. The mind will always doubt. The mind will never believe. Now, many people have beliefs. I believe in the Virgin Mary. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe in the Father and the Holy Spirit. And I, these are beliefs, but I'm talking about faith that is active and living. We can have beliefs in our mind. I believe this. I believe that. I believe that. Well, that and two dollars will get you on the subway in New York City. It means nothing just to have mind belief. But if you have heart belief, your life changes. Hmm? Now, doubt works the same way. Here, and here's the deal. You actually can't have faith without doubt being in the picture. Because faith is an exercise of trusting God and the unseen stacked up against appearances to your mind. You understand what I'm saying? As long as you're a human being with a mind, you're going to have doubts. Now listen, it's never that easy that God says, Abraham, do this. He says, okay, boss. No, Abraham had the look. Okay, let's see. Now, you want me to take my 22-year-old son and kill him up on an altar? Hmm. That doesn't sound reasonable. And, of course, it does. It doesn't sound like the God I know. And it doesn't. And Abraham, logically, you know he ticked off the list. Don't think he was so stupid. He just said, okay, boys. Abraham was an intelligent guy. He had to sort through the whole thing. And there was a lot of things on the mind side. Tick this, 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 this. Hey, this is a stupid idea. 
But pulsating in his heart was a word from God, do this, my son. And faith triumphed over that doubt. And he stepped out, taking Isaac up toward the mountain. In everyone's life, when a decision comes to act in faith, there's a mountain of reasons why it's not reasonable. Your mind comes and says, well, I don't know, that's kind of stupid. I mean, after all, we all know that the best thing is uh, not to go to some second-class college, but to go to the best. Why would God transfer me to the second best? What is God doing? Stepping down? Is God revolting against the Ivy League schools? Hey, wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. I mean, we we have so many things going on in our brain, of things that sound reasonable to us. And, of course, we know that our mind and good reason equals God. But God tells us to do things that seem against our logic for two reasons. One because they don't always agree with the outer environment of conditions. And number two, because they often do violence against our self-life. So the Lord says, I want you to go and talk to that that, that friend of yours at school or that non-friend of yours who's always picking on you and they're the nastiest person you know. I want you to go and talk to them about Jesus. Now you say, get behind me, Satan. What are you trying to do? That can't be God. And of course, the main thing is a lot of times what God tells us to do by faith, it it goes against our self-life. It's something uncomfortable. It's something we have to sacrifice. We have to fight the good fight of faith. There's sacrifice in it, you see. But we, we tend toward the easy way, the way that makes sense. And so we get into this thing where we have a war going. And it's good that you have a war going. It's a war where the mind is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. And the heart is saying, come on, come on, come on. Now, the whole question is this. When something comes up and you initially have these doubts in your mind, this can't be, this isn't reasonable, this isn't logical, and this goes against the way I like to do things, that's not sin. That's just the option. It's what you do with the war of heart and mind that in the end determines whether it becomes unbelief in sin or whether it becomes faith's victory. You understand? There's some decisions we have to make snap judgments on, but I'm talking about longer-range decisions where we have a list of things going. It is not a sin to have doubts in your heart. I mean, to have doubt in your mind. It is a sin to have doubt in your heart. You've let that doubt get down from your mind and paralyze your heart from doing what God told you to do. That's the sin. You understand the difference? Because they always go hand in hand. And I'm tired of people always feeling guilty because they have doubt. Listen, if you don't have doubt, you're no longer a human being. You are one of those clones that was made by uh, the doctor in the, uh, what's the name of that great movie, you know? Anyway, you, you know how they make these clones. And clones never have any problem. They just do what the master says. That ain't the way you are. You have to make a free will decision to act by faith, even when there are some things that seem to be inconsistent with faith. 
And if you go through the hall of fame of those who lived a faithful life, you'll always find that factor. I just recently read, I'm sorry that more people don't know about some of these famous people, but uh, there's a famous missionary whose name was C.T. Studd. How many of you know who this guy is? Ah, Okay, good. All right, well, he was a famous missionary. He went out to China with the Cambridge Seven. He was the most famous uh, cricket player in England in his day. And he left and sold all. He got an inheritance, and he gave it all away. He went out to China, and he came back years later, and then he went out to India, and he came back. And (laughs) one day he uh, went by this church in England. Now, he's got such a bad heart condition, and he's 52 years old or something like that, 56, I think. And uh, the the doctors say, you can't go anywhere. You're shot. You're done. He goes by a church one day, and he sees a sign up. The guy's going to speak that night, and it says, uh, cannibals want missionaries. And he thought it was so funny, this the sign that the cannibals want to eat the missionaries, that he thought he'd go in and see what it was all about. Well, it was a, it was a German guy who didn't quite use the King's English right. And he was talking about the need for some people to go to Africa to preach to the natives. At that time, there were no missionaries south of the, 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 the desert, you know. And C.T. Studd felt the Lord say, you go. Because the guy up the front said, who will go? Nobody went. The old C.T. pulled up from a chair, 56 years old. <laughs> then he went up there. Well, then the mission looked at him and says, well, you can't possibly go. You've got a heart condition. You've got this. You've got that. He said, well, God's telling me to go. They said, well, I'm sorry. We can't support you. He says, that's okay. I'll go myself. And he went down there and he opened up a tremendous revival work in the Congo and lived to 72 years old by the grace of God. But all the factors were stacked against him. And yet he just knew it was God's voice. Of course, he'd been around for a while. He knew the difference between just personal ambition and God's voice. But he opened up the Congo to the gospel. And that's why the Congolese are some of the greatest Christian brethren in the world. Maybe someday you'll get to go down there and see what they're like. Their love for one another put us to shame. But that's a whole other story. But you see, what he did was overcome that doubt. That this, this can't be. This can't be. Because that voice of God said, you go. I'll be with you. And of course, the Lord supported him through the whole thing. And it was a wonderful story of victory. Now we have an accumulating treasure. Everything Jesus says to you, every time you say yes to the Lord, every bit of fruit that you bear, every time you had your hands up in worship and you really felt that touch from heaven, that's part of the whole treasure. Guard the treasure. One day, you don't want to be like Esau who gave it all away for something stupid. The treasure is so valuable. And uh, according to the workshop, I'm doing this completely wrong, because according to the workshop, I should be talking about you as the Lord's treasure. And how is the Lord going to keep you? But I have to talk to the old fuddy-duds about that. You need to uh, guard your treasure. And God will do some amazing things. I do believe in our nation we need the Lord to recover and revive His work.
throughout the churches of the land. There's so many precious saints. I mean, we, we know nothing. I mean, we come here to PLU. I don't know if any of you know anything about the school. I really don't know much about it, except I'm sure many of them are great Christians. How we need the Lord to revive us. In the living faith. Faith that moves at the impulse of God. For this we need a clear conscience. For this we need to acknowledge our doubt and then to battle over that doubt by faith. Giving God the victory. Well, may the Lord help you. Now tomorrow we'll take up another aspect of this fight. Of the good fight. Where Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you that we could uh, briefly speak on these things. And we pray, Lord, that in the lives of your people, you would have a clear conscience and an active and living faith as your precious treasure. How we thank you, Lord, that you exhort us to fight and also to guard. Lord, you're such a keeping God. And Lord, we would just take the words today and pray that you would keep them in our hearts that they may have value to us as we treasure up the things of God. We thank you for this day, for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.